Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. A couple of announcements. Uh, in case you didn't hear, we are having um, we are having cl- uh, Bible class church uh, a week from Sunday, which would be the 11th. I had announced that that weekend they were going to tentatively shut down the the power and redo the uh, uh, the meters in the building, but that's not going to ha- going to happen, and that is indefinitely postponed. It has to happen sometime soon, but it's imminent, but not soon coming. Sort of like the rapture. The other uh, announcement is that uh, regarding live streaming, uh, we will be turning the live stream on about eight, about 7:55, and we will be cutting it off within a minute or so after the conclusion of class each night. Uh, the Lord's been very gracious to us, as has Chris Jukes, whose group has handled our live streaming for the last, I guess, three years since we've been doing it. Uh, but now that we have really gotten into the big leagues with new format and new server and all of that, we're actually going to start seeing a bill for the live streaming. So we've had three years of of grace, and since we're going to have to start paying for it by the minute or kilobyte, we don't know yet, um, we're going to be a little more judicious in our uh, use of the stream. So we won't be turning it on until about five minutes before class begins. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments to make sure that we are prepared spiritually to study the word, that we're in fellowship and that we are ready to focus and concentrate on what uh, God the Holy Spirit has to teach us and to apply in our lives this evening. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, you've promised in your word that your word will not go forth in vain, that it will accomplish the purpose that you have intended for it. Father, we know from the scriptures that it is your word that is alive and powerful. It is through God the Holy Spirit utilizing it in our lives that we are able to come to understand more and more of who you are, who we are, and all that you have provided for us. In your grace, you have given us so much. You have given us uh, a salvation that has taken care of every problem, every difficulty that we have in our relationship with you. Every sin is paid for. You have supplied us with an uh, untold number of uh, resources that we access through the study of your word and through God the Holy Spirit. And it is through those that we are able then to face the issues of life, the challenges, the difficulties, so that As we go through life, we can grow spiritually, we can be a testimony and a witness to you, and it all depends on just that simple choice we make each day to trust you or not. And so, Father, challenge us as we continue our study of the importance of faith and the examples of faith from the Old Testament. Uh, We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're starting this evening in Hebrews 11, moving into the next little section. The last section that we've dealt with for several weeks, several lessons, was on faith in the life of Moses. One example of the faith of his parents, the other faith in the life of Moses and in the life of the Israelites as they crossed the Red Sea. 
Now we move from the Exodus event to the conquest. And you can just use this as an opportunity to sort of think your way through the Old Testament. If you're thinking your way through Genesis, if you remember, this is a quiz. Take out a piece of paper and write down four, peop- four, th- four events and four people in Genesis. We st- studied that before. You should remember that. Just joking. Four, the four events are what? Creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel. The four people are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So if you can remember those eight things, you've worked your way through, through all the way through Genesis. And then when you come to Exodus, we have the uh, birth of Moses, and then we have the call of Moses and the ten plagues. Then we have the uh, departure, the rescue, the redemption through the Red Sea. And then we have the Israelites going to Mount Sinai where they're given the law. And the whole second half of Exodus has to do with uh, explicating the Mosaic law in terms of the ritual primarily. There's other uh, civil law that's there, but primarily it's focused on the laws of uh, sacrifices and the construction of the, of the uh, tabernacle. And so that takes us through Exodus. And the last events historically is when they are on Mount Sinai, Moses gets the law, then Moses brings it down to the people, and then we have the uh, explanation of what's in the law. The next major event that occurs, of course, is described in Numbers. When they depart Sinai, go to Kadesh Barnea, and God instructs Moses to send uh, 12 spies into the land that he has promised to give them to see the nature of what they will be uh, up against when God takes them in to destroy the Canaanites. They misunderstand the order. It's one of the classic examples in Scripture of the misinterpretation of Scripture. They completely misunderstand. God didn't say, go see if you can do it. He said to go spy out the land. It's a recon trip to see what it's like, what, it's, what the layout of the land is. But the, re, the purpose isn't to see if they can do it. The purpose is to understand the layout of the land so that as God takes them in, they will have an understanding of, of, of what's there. They fail to understand that. Ten of the spies come back and they're whining and crying and saying they can't do it. They can't uh, face these uh, Canaanites because they're, uh, they've got too many cities, fortified cities, walled cities. The, the people are too numerous, and they're giants in the land. And only two, Caleb and Joshua, are exercising faith and trust in the Word. Now, it's interesting, neither Caleb nor Joshua ends up in Hebrews 11, which I thought was an int- just an observation in terms of who's there. The writer of Hebrews is hitting certain high points, but that event is not one of the points that he focuses on. What he does focus on is when that generation has died off after the 40 years in the wilderness and the new generation, the generation that is born to the Exodus generation, now is on the verge of entering the land and God gives them orders on how to enter the land and how to defeat the particular uh, cities that are there. And so that's the next event that the writer of Hebrews comes to in Hebrews 11, 30 and 31. So these two events, which are connected, they deal with the conquest of Jericho. One has to do with the obedience, the faith of the, of the uh, Israelites, and they're following the orders of God and how they were to take Jericho. And then the other has to do with the faith of Rahab, who is the Gentile uh, prostitute who is inside the city in the pagan uh, environment there and her response to God. So we have these two different uh, events that come out of the first six chapters of the book of Joshua. So we want to take a little time to understand the background there and to understand the focus of this particular section. Now, as we have gone through and as we proceeded through Hebrews chapter 11, the focus goes back to developing the idea in the first two verses. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is a conviction. Faith is a conviction. It is an understanding of revelation. The object of faith is always in 
something that is revealed, in this case promises. It is always, take faith always takes the promise and is convinced that it's true, even though there may not be any empirical evidence of its fulfillment. And that has particular bearing not only in the life of those to whom the, the writer of Hebrews is, is speaking, but also to us, because often we don't see God fulfill certain promises in our lives the way we think they ought to be fulfilled. We don't understand how, for example, all things uh, work together for good. We don't see, necessarily see that in our lives. We just know that even when we go through difficult times, we know that God is working all things together for good in terms of his plan. So we have to trust him even though we don't see and have that empirical evidence of that, of that fulfillment. And then the writer of Hebrews begins to give examples, starting with creation, going through the a period before the Noahic flood, focusing then on Noah, then on Abraham, and then on Moses, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the patriarchs, and then on Moses, showing that they, in many cases, did not see the evidence of the fulfillment of those of those uh, promises that God had given to them. And so we focus on what faith is and the role of faith in the conquest of the land, and by application, the role of faith in the spiritual life of the believer. And several things I want to cover just by way of introduction here. First of all, we have to be reminded that for the last series of examples that we've looked at in Hebrews 11, the faith of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the faith of Moses, all of these ultimately went back to specific promises that God had made to Abraham with reference to the Abrahamic covenant. He had promised that he would give him a land and that this was first laid out in Genesis 12:7, when God promised that to your descendants, I will give this land. And then Abraham responded in faith and built an altar to the Lord and worshiped him there at Bethel. And then in Genesis 15:18 to 21, this is incorporated within the Abrahamic covenant, and uh, God makes a covenant with him and says to, in verse 18, to your descendants I've given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So this is just a broad, sweeping uh, description of the boundaries. The Euphrates actually is to the northwest, I mean northeast of Israel, and then the river of Egypt to the to the southwest, and so it just covers this broad sweep, and it's not as detailed as it is in some subsequent passages. But that all of that land, which would today incorporate Lebanon, it would incorporate uh, what is both the West Bank, the uh, as well as Israel, the Sinai Peninsula, the uh, much of the Hashemai Kingdom of Jordan on up into. Uh, Syria, all of that area would be part of the land that God promised to Abraham. Second point that we should be reminded of is that the land promise was reiterated uh, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Several more times God restated this promise to Abraham that he was giving this land to Abraham and to his seed forever. This is an, uh, a permanent promise from God. It's not based on any condition. The giving of the land is not based on any condition. Now, what we'll learn is that the enjoyment of the land, the enjoyment of the blessing in the land, the benefits of the land, the actual uh, possession and ownership of the land will be dependent upon their obedience. And that if they're not obedient, they'll be kicked out of the land, but the title deed for the land is still theirs. That's the permanence of it. God doesn't say that, okay, finally you've been disobedient so much that I'm taking this land away from you and it's not yours anymore. Uh, so it is still there. So the land promise is reiterated to Abraham, again to Isaac two or three times, to Jacob uh, two or three times, but none of them ever saw that promise fulfilled. Hebrews 11, 9, and 10 makes that point. By faith he dwelt... Uh, that is, Abraham felt dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac 
and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which has, has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So he's looking forward to that promise. But the, the point that the application, really, that the writer of Hebrews is making to these uh, Jewish believers in Jesus, the Messiah, is that as they're tempted to give up and to go back into the, the Judaism of that time, first century Judaism, and to just give up on everything, he is saying, that there are going to be difficult times. We can't grow weary. We can't give up. No matter what the obstacles may be, no matter what the temptations or testing may be, we have to learn to hang in there to endure in obedience, just as these uh, examples of the Old Testament, just as these patriarchs did. They never saw the fulfillment of the promise, but they kept their focus. It was more real to them than if it had a physical, empirical uh, presence. Now, third, finally, in the book of Joshua, the promise begins to be fulfilled. The nation is now on the border of the land that God has promised them. They are beginning to get specific direction from God as to how they are to cross the Jordan River, how they are to go into the land, what the order of march should be uh, among the tribes, and and, and God is not just giving them general instructions, go into the land, but he is telling them generally what they are to do and specifically the methods that they are to use in getting there. And that, I think, is, is important. God does not always go into that much detail, but in times and in particular cases and situations, God, we not only have broad general promises, but we have specific statements in Scripture as to how we are to do certain things. In other, in other situations and in other areas of application, we might just have broad, uh, broad general promises. And we'll, you see both of those take place in, in the book of Joshua. So in the book of Joshua, the promise begins to be fulfilled. Now think with me, before we go any further, think with me in terms of the history of Israel how the nation as a corporate entity is to depict the Christian life. Remember, they are in slavery in Egypt. Then God redeems them at the, uh, at the Passover. There is the sacrificial lamb that covers the house so that when the blood is applied, when God comes to bring death to the firstborn, there's no death to the house of those who have the blood applied. That is a picture of our individual salvation, that when we have put our faith in Christ and the uh, death of Christ on the cross is applied to us in that sense, then there is no, uh, then, then spiritual death is reversed and we're regenerate. So, the Passover meal itself, which was just this last uh, Monday evening to Monday sunset to Tuesday sunset, the Passover depicts salvation. Now, the nation is redeemed at that point. So what happens after that redemption is not a picture of redemption anymore because that's over with, that's accomplished. That was that, e that singular event. What happens from that point on is in, in the history of Israel, is to depict sanctification in the life of the believer. It depicts the life now of obedience. See, they're saved, as it were, in the, at the Exodus. They're identified at the Red Sea, as I pointed out last time, with the faith of Moses, so that that's comparable to our position in Christ. They're, in a sense, have their position through their identification with Moses. And then now that they are a redeemed people, the issue at Mount Sinai is how does a redeemed, sanctified people adopted as God's firstborn son supposed to live? How do they live? So from that point on, the doctrine, the application is in the direction of, of sanctification. So when we look at Joshua, the promise begins to be fulfilled, and the examples that we see in uh, all the events after Sinai really relate to uh, sanctification. So we'll look at, under point number four, we'll look at some background to the book of Joshua just to get a little bit of a flyover. 
The book of Joshua, there's a good picture for you so you can remember, remember that. It's about conquest. That is the sort of a singular one word you can use to remember what is going on in, in Joshua. It is uh, about a battle. And it is a great, tremendous picture of the believer's battle, the fight we all are engaged in, in terms of, of a spiritual warfare. The physical warfare of Israel against the Canaanites is analogous to the fight that every believer has against the paganism that's in his own soul. So first of all, we'll just uh, background to the book. The title of the book, Joshua, comes from the central character in the book, who is Joshua. His name is the same name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Yeshua, meaning uh, which is related to salvation. And he is the one who uh, will bring the people into the land. Uh, the second point is, first point was the title, name for the cent- central person in the book. The, th- the second point has to do with authorship. We don't know who wrote Joshua. We know that sections of it were uh, probably written by Joshua. Other sections were not written by Joshua. For example, the parts written after his death. It's very likely that he wrote large sections of it due to the use of the first-person singular pronoun uh, at places. It's clear that an eyewitness wrote it because of the first-person plural that's used in places, we and us, along with detailed descriptions that would only be known to somebody who was present at the time of these events. Uh, furthermore, in 625, there is the comment related to Rahab, uh, that, that as she lives even to this day. So Rahab is still alive at the time of the writing of, of Joshua, and the Jebusites are still in control of Jerusalem. So this means it's written before David uh, defeated the Jebusites and conquered Jerusalem as part of, the, uh, part of his kingdom. So several times the writer notes something and then says, to this day. So we have... Uh, we don't know who the, who the human author was, but it is clearly authored by God the Holy Spirit who writes through someone who has the gift of prophet, I'm sure. Then we have de- the date of the book, and the, or the dates or the time period covered in the book are from a pro- uh, approximately, um, it's probably written, conclu- finished by 1380 B.C. The events cover the period from 1406 B.C. when they entered the land to 1380 B.C. The purpose is to demonstrate God's faithfulness to his promises in fulfilling the promise he made to the patriarchs and Moses to give the land uh, to Israel by holy war. So God has made that promise. So when we take that and we plug it into what we're reading in, in Hebrews 11, Once again, both of these examples of faith that we look at, the faith in conquering Jericho, the faith of Rahab, ultimately go back to the promise that God has given them the land. One of the things that is quite striking uh, in in the dialogue that the the two spies have when they meet with, uh, when they first meet Rahab, is that she already knows that God has given the land to the Israelites. And she has heard all of the stories about how God delivered them from Israel, and so have all the Canaanites, and they've been scared to death for 40 years. They were more afraid of the Israelites 40 years earlier when the spies came into the land than the spies were afraid of the Canaanites, but they didn't know it. When the Canaanites had heard all of these stories, and they'd probably been exaggerated and developed about all of the plagues and how God had defeated the armies of the great, magnificent armies and chariots of Pharaoh, and so the the Canaanites were already operating in tremendous uh, tremendous fear, expecting to be uh, completely defeated. So the purpose of this book is to demonstrate the faithfulness of God to his promise as well as to demonstrate the people's faith in God in fulfilling the promise, which fits right in with the theme of Hebrews chapter 11. Fifth point, by way of introduction to Joshua, is that in the Hebrew Bible, it's the first of the former prophets. The Hebrew Bible is divided into three sections, the Torah, which means instruction, that's the first five books, what we call the Pentateuch, 
Torah means law in one sense. It also means instruction. So you have the first five books of the Torah. The second division are the prophets. And you have two subdivisions. You have the early prophets or the former prophets and the latter prophets. And the former prophets are Joshua, Judges, and Ruth is considered part of Judges in the Hebrew canon. Samuel, Kings, these are part of the prophets. Now, we think of those in the English Bible, we put them, classify them as historical books. But it's not just history. It is a prophetically edited history showing what God is doing in light of the promises in Deuteronomy, the blessings and the curses of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 to 30, so that they are written by prophets and the early, those early books are showing the outworking of God's promises for blessing and promises for judgment in, in the, in the, um, those what we call historical books. So Joshua is the first one. So the purpose that tells us something about Joshua. It's not simply a historical narrative on how God gave the land to Israel. It is to be interpreted within the framework of theology that we get coming out of Deuteronomy. And, of course, we just talked about this uh, on Tuesday night when we were in, in Revelation, and we were talking about how God is going to uh, how the Jews will finally turn back to God at the end of the tribulation period and when they are corporately saved as a nation. And I went back all the way to Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 to 30 to locate the basis for that event in the future in what God promised and predicted in those blessing and cursing passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And so Joshua then, if we think of it not as history, but we think of it as God showing the outworking of what he stated in Deuteronomy and in the promises in the, in the Torah, then we have a, 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 an understanding of why this is important and how then we can take these events and put them within a grid that overlays the spiritual life of a church-age believer, giving us a framework for application. That's why the Old Testament is important. It gives us a, 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 a pattern, an analogy. Uh, often we call that typology. Uh, it's translated example. For example, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 3, these things happen to them as an example for us. Now, we all know that none of us learn anything from, exam- from an example. Not one person here. We always see the examples. People tell us about all the wonderful things they learned by how they made mistakes, and we go, yeah, 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 but that won't apply to me. So it's, we really don't learn very much from example, but that's what it's there for and to teach us. So it helps us structure that understanding, which I'll talk about in the next point. So the sixth point just deals with the basic structure outlined of the book, The first five chapters deal with God bringing the nation to enter the land of Canaan, crossing the Jordan when they first enter the land. Uh, The priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant lead them across the Jordan, which is just a raging torrent at that time. And that took a tremendous act of faith. Now, that's an example of what I'm going to I want to focus on tonight is how faith works. We often think of faith as being opposed to works. But that's because this word work, and we also use the word doing, are, are, are words that have broader meanings. You know, often we think of works, and we talk about works, that faith is opposed to works. And it is, if we're understanding works to be something we do that's supposed to impress God or, or bring merit to us, because of what we do. But faith always involves doing something related to the faith. Uh, Sometimes it's something that's more intellectual. Sometimes it's something that's more overt. But when God told the the Israelites, this is how you're going to cross into the land, the priests are going to go first, carrying the Ark of the Covenant. They're going to carry it on the... uh, 
poles by which it should be carried, because if you don't trust me, then you're going to carry it and touch the ark, and you're going to die instantly. So trust involves doing, doing the instructions and following the instructions. And they are to step off. They come to the steep bank there of the, of the Jordan. I don't know if any of you have ever been around a river that is flowing very rapidly or is at flood stage, but you realize the danger that's there as this water is rushing past you, recognizing that if you fall into that, then the current is such that you can easily be swept away and easily be drowned. And the water isn't going to stop. It wasn't like the situation at the Red Sea where Moses held up his staff and the Red Sea parted, and then they went forward. At this event, God told them that the the priests are to step into the river, and when their feet actually hit ground, the the water will have stopped. So as their feet are going down, the water is is splitting just under their feet, so that when their feet hit hit uh, something solid, it's dry ground. They're having they're they're trusting God and doing something that ran completely contrary to what their eyes and their brain was telling them they should do. That's when the faith in the word of God is more real. What God says is more real to us than what our, you know, what our experience, what our senses tell us. And so that must have been quite a, uh, a challenge for them to take that step into the Jordan. But that is a picture of the kind of faith, rest, action that's part of the spiritual life. So God led them to enter the land of Canaan in the first five chapters, and then starting verse 13 to 12, 24, we have the beginnings of the conquest uh, of the land. In 513, uh, the angel of the Lord is the commander of the armies of the Lord, the uh, pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ begins to address Joshua, giving him instructions on how they are to take Jericho, which just uh, has some of the most unusual military tactics that we've ever seen. That covers the, the period to 1224, and then from the 13th chapter through the end of the book, uh, it's, it's basically a, a real estate deeds where God is dividing up the land and giving the borders for all the different tribes and how th- that will be apportioned. Now, the seventh point we need to understand in relation to Joshua has to do with uh, what the book is, is teaching us, how we should read Joshua so that we understand it's more than just describing what God did uh, some 4,000 years ago or 3,500 years ago, but it has a, a teaching emphasis in relationship to experiential sanctification. So we have to understand a little bit about what that term means, and I've got about five or six points on uh, experiential sanctification and understanding that meaning. Now, the word sanctification is a word that's used to describe the believer's position in relationship to God. The word sanctification comes from two word groups, one in Hebrew, one in Greek, The Hebrew word group is kadash, Q-D-S-H. The S-H is one one, uh, consonant, one symbol in the Hebrew alphabet, kadash. And the root meaning there is to be set apart to the service of a deity. It isn't the idea of holy with the sense of purity, as we've seen in some passages, the uh, masculine participle of that word is the term used for the male prostitutes that functioned in in Baal worship. And that's certainly not a morally pure endeavor. So the root meaning of kadash or holy means set apart or consecrated to the service of God. So So sanctification describes the believer as one who is set apart to the service of God. But it has two senses. And these, the first sense has to do with positional sanctification, and the second is experiential sanctification. Now, if we think of the history of Israel as being a pattern for the individual spiritual life of the believer, then the, call, the, the, the covenant with Abraham is a picture of positional sanctification. 
God called out Abraham and he said, in your seed, all nations will be blessed. They, they have a new position. In Abraham, they are set apart from all the other nations on the earth to serve God in a special way. That it is going to be through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that all nations will be blessed first and foremost, through salvation that will come through the Messiah, that will come through that line. Secondly, because it is through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the Scriptures, the Word of God, is going to be revealed to man, and so they are the custodians of the Word of God. So they are positionally set apart in Abraham based on an unconditional or permanent covenant that can't ever be be changed. That's a picture of eternal security for us is that that same kind of agreement that God made with Abraham is the foundation for our relationship with God. Positionally, we can't ever lose that identification with Christ where we're set apart to the service of God. However, as we go through day-to-day life, we are often uh, disobedient, we're often uh, self-absorbed, we're always uh, often uh, operating on our sin nature. And at those times, we are not living as one who is set apart to God. We are living on the basis of our own lust and our own sin nature. And we have to learn to say no to the sin nature and yes to the word of God. And that is a process of spiritual growth that we refer to as experiential sanctification, where we're learning to uh, live in the service of God experientially uh, through the application of the Word of God. So, positional sanctification describes the believer's position before God, which can't be lost, can't be changed, uh, and that Old Testament type relates to Abraham, and then uh, experiential sanctification is going to relate to uh, the application of specific commands and promises that God has made in relationship to how we're to serve him. So in terms of Israel, they're positionally set apart when they cross the Red Sea. At Sinai, they learn how they are to serve God in terms of day-to-day obedience. So the Mosaic Law then becomes a pattern for sanctification, and it is the basis for the experiential sanctification uh, for the Old Testament believer in Israel. So uh, in the whole doctrine of sanctification from the Old Testament, we see that the land is promised to Abraham and it's given to Israel on a permanent basis. But the actual benefit and enjoyment and blessing of the land is theirs only if they are obedient uh, to God, only if they are applying the law. And God said, if you disobey the law, then I will remove you from the land and you won't enjoy uh, enjoy its blessings. Now, in a same way, by analogy, the believer is given a uh, certain number of blessings and privileges in Christ. We have all the spiritual assets that we have in Christ. We're blessed with an infinite number of blessings. Uh, God has given us everything related to life and godliness. We have the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We have a completed canon of Scripture. All of these things are ours positionally in Christ. But they only become ours experientially as we learn the Word and then as we apply it on a day-to-day basis. And the one of the metaphors that the Scripture uses to teach how we grow spiritually is the metaphor of warfare. And we see this in passages such as uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And these are strongholds of thought that are deeply entrenched in our, in our, uh, in our mind, in our thinking. And these weapons of warfare are for the purpose of casting down arguments and uh Every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, these participles that we have there, pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and bringing every thought into captivity, 
deal with the progress of our spiritual growth. It is a process where we learn the word and we apply the word. And as we apply the word, we're doing certain things. Oh, there's a terrible word. All of a sudden, it's legalism. No, that's not what legalism is. Legalism is when you say you have to do something in order to get God's uh, merit, that he blesses you because you do certain things. Whereas obedience to the word is not done from that motive. It is the application of faith. That's what James talks about when he talks about don't be a hearer, but also a doer. Now, that phraseology is often lost on us because of the familiarity with the terms. What James is saying, don't be a listener. Don't just take notes. Don't just fill up your doctrine notebook with all these uh, doctrines, but apply it so that when uh, the Scripture says that you are uh, to speak and uh, speak the truth in love, that you speak the truth in love. You don't speak the truth in a way that is intended to be harmful or destructive uh, or uh, vindictive towards somebody else, where you're just trying to lash lash out at them. When the Scriptures talk about uh, how we are to uh, be honest and how we are to be continuously in prayer, all of these things are things we are to do. So if the Scripture says pray without ceasing, then what that means is I don't just write that down in my Bible, but it means that I need to discipline my life and arrange my time schedule so that I have consistent patterns of prayer uh, in my life. So we're not just listeners, we're doing. And then in James 2, James changed the terminology from hearing and doing to faith and works. Faith is comparable to hearing. When we hear the, the God's word, we say, okay, I believe that's true. Well, if we believe it's true, then we're going to uh, do what it says to do, or in other words, we're going to uh, perform whatever it is that we're commanded to perform. We're going to uh, do the, the do the works in that sense, not in a meritorious sense, which was the problem that the Pharisees had. The problems that uh, the Judaizers had is that they thought that their works, that what they did, is what gave them meritorious standing before God, and they rather than that it was a result of a meritorious standing before God. So let me give you a couple of examples to try to help us think our way through this. Colossians two says that we. As you received Christ, walk also in him. Now, how did you receive Christ? You received Christ by faith. But that faith was in a particular promise of God. Now, how are we to walk? We're in the same way, the Colossians says, we are to walk in the same way that we first became a believer, trusting in him. Now, some people have, have tr taken that and abused it, by going into a quasi-mysticism where there's really no object to the faith, it's just faith. You just somehow have faith, and it becomes a faith in faith. And then that gets real fuzzy because it picks up a lot of ideas that come out of paganism related to, uh, for example, you have various uh, mind-control cults that came out of the New Age movement, and that if I just think it, then I can make it happen, and I need to uh, get involved in things such as creative visualization where uh, I can uh, control my reality by the, by the things that I think. And this is all part of uh, Norman Vincent Peale's Power of Positive Thinking and uh, Robert Schuller's Power of Possibility Thinking, and all of that led into what became known as the Positive Confession or the Health and Wealth name it, claim it movement that was part of the charismatic movement. And it is an abuse of faith because the faith in Scripture is not a faith in faith. It's not faith in and of itself that is significant. It's the object. It's the object of faith. So let's look at the first example I have uh, is in relationship to justification, in relationship to phase one salvation. When Paul and Silas were arrested in uh, Philippi and put into the, the jail there, which wasn't very large. They were singing hymns to God, and um, 
an angel came and the shackles came off and they didn't leave. And when the jailer discovered this, he came running in to see what had happened and they were still sitting there, but he was scared to death because the penalty in the Roman Empire for uh, someone who was a, a, a on guard duty was if the prisoners escaped, if anything happened, they would lose their life. So he's he is panicky, but he has also been hearing their testimony and their their hymn singing, and so he says to them, "What must I do to be saved?" And their answer is given as, "Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household." Now, another verse that connects to that is the the verse we have in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, that relates to justification. As Paul is explaining what the, the great doctrine of justification by faith in Romans 4, he goes to the example of Abraham from Abraham Genesis, in Genesis 15, 15, 7. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him or imputed to him for righteousness. So Abraham believes something, that some promise from God. It's not just he believed in God, but he believed God. God told him something and he believed it. There was content, a promise to what he, what he had believed. In Acts 16.31, the key that word that we want to hone in on is that word believe. It is a an aorist active imperative, which indicates that it is a priority statement that it, that they are calling upon the, the Philippian jailer to, at that moment, to trust in Jesus Christ. Now, they remember, they've been singing hymns and they've been talking for some time. This isn't all that he knew. There's not enough, really enough content in that, in that verse to give you the gospel. But there's enough content in the context for them to have understood what that meant. This is the conclusion of what Paul and Silas had communicated to him in terms of what uh, Jesus Christ had done for him. And so there's the command to believe. So what's, what are you, what's the response? The response is that the individual has an option whether to accept what has been said as true and trust and rely on it as true or not. Now, there's no, there's nothing to do in terms of any other action or any other uh, overt uh, behavior in relationship to justification. It is simply affirming, assenting to a truth that Jesus Christ died for me and I am trusting exclusively upon him for salvation. So the, the object of faith is the work of Christ on the cross. So faith always has an object, and that object is expressed as a promise or a description of what Christ did on the cross. So in this case, there's not an external action that must be taken. It's not that he has to believe and go be baptized or believe and go join a church or believe and give half of his money to God. He simply believes or trusts in what Christ did on the cross, and the result is that he's saved, uh, he's justified. Now, the second example that I want to use is related not to the gospel justification issue, but is related to understanding faith as it operates in the believer's life after salvation in terms of what we're studying in Hebrews 11 as well as what was, what's happening in, in Joshua. And this takes us to one of the great illustrations of faith in the Gospels, which is when Peter was walking on the water. And this is covered in Matthew 14, 29 to 31. Now, Jesus had already walked out to the disciples on the Sea of Galilee so they could see that it could be done, and they knew the Sea of Galilee better than anyone. They knew that he's not walking on stones, that there's not a sandbar there. That's the view that liberals will usually come up with because their presupposition is miracles really can't happen, so we have to explain how this this really took place uh, uh, in a naturalistic manner. So Jesus has walked out there, and now Peter wants to do it. 
Peter is so, so enthusiastic. Lord, that's, that's great. I want to do it. So, so Jesus says to him in verse 29, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But then he saw the wind. He heard the wind. saw the wind picking up and the waves. And the wind became boisterous and he became afraid. And he began to sink and he cried out saying, Lord, save me. In verse 31, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him. This indicates Peter had walked some distance from the boat out to where Jesus was. See, it wasn't just one or two steps and then, uh, then he took his eyes off the Lord, but he had gone some distance and now these, you know, 20, 30 feet from the boat, uh, he's getting close to Jesus and he's seeing the, the uh, waves come up. So Jesus rested, stuck out his hand, caught him, and said to him, and this is where we understand what the lesson is. Jesus said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? That's the focal point of this episode. That is the, the teaching point, is on faith. Now, Peter's not having some sort of uh, close encounter with his navel on the boat. He's not going into some sort of altered state of consciousness like uh, like a Hindu or Buddhist in terms of generating some sort of mystical faith power that is faith in faith. It has an object, and the object is the Lord Jesus Christ and his command. The command is expressed in verse 29, come. Interestingly, it's the same grammatical structure, that we have in Acts 16.31. It's an aorist active imperative. He says, come. And so Peter gets out of the boat, and he begins to walk. He's trusting in Christ, but the trust is coupled with doing something specific. And that is, he can't just sit there in the boat with his doctrinal notebook and understand that, okay, this is how I'm supposed to use the faith rest drill. That's a, I just finished reading the book. There's lots of great promises there. Isn't that wonderful? Let's close in prayer and go home. He's got to get out of the boat and start walking on the water. He's got to put what he believed, what he says he believed, what he learned, and he has to now apply it and implement it. That's another good word for doing it or works, not in a meritorious sense. And he has to get out of the boat and start walking on the water. And initially things are smooth, but then things start to get a little tough. The water gets rough and the wind comes up and the waves come up. And all of a sudden Peter becomes distracted by what's happening around him. And he gets his eyes off of the promise and on to the problems, which is what happens to us on a regular basis where we get our eyes off of our relationship with the Lord and on to the details of life and what can go wrong and how this can't work and why uh, Jesus really doesn't take care of me in times of uh, testing and difficulty, and we get our focus completely off of the Lord. So Jesus uses this to illustrate the whole principle that faith in certain instances related to certain mandates, involves a specific action that is uh, directly related uh, to the mandate. And so the Lord's statement at the end there tells us that this whole episode is, is all about is all about faith. So this is, again, what James is talking about when he says that we are not to just listen to the word, but we are to do it. We have faith plus works. It's all related to what is occurring in the believer's growth process after salvation. Now, the same thing is true in the spiritual combat that the believer enters into in the church age. We're in a battle, and the Lord has described how we are to fight the battle, what the tools are in the battle, what our weapons are, and how we are to achieve victory, not in our own power, but in the power of what God has given us, utilizing the promises and the principles that God has described uh, in the the Scripture. So we need to take that whole model of, of spiritual combat 
and lay that over what is happening in Joshua to understand how this faith principle operates in terms of combat. In Joshua, you have the Israelites who are on the edge of the land. They are now in a position to go into the area of blessing that God has promised them, the land, and to enjoy what God has given them. But in order to live in the land, they have to they have to apply what God revealed to them on Mount Sinai. They have to implement the law because God told them at the end of the law that if they didn't implement it right, then God would eventually kick them out of the land. There would be a whole series of, of various disciplinary procedures, and eventually if they were rebellious, if they were disobedient, God would remove them from the land completely. So the physical holy war that they are engaged in when they enter the land is analogous to the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. When you first became a believer, you had a land, you had a territory to conquer. And that territory you needed to conquer was between your ears. It's in our thinking. We are to learn to think as Christ thinks. We are to take every thought captive for Christ, and we are not to be conformed to the thinking of the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So your mind was under the control of the Canaanites. Your mind was thinking according to pagan human viewpoint thinking, and there were certain strongholds of thought processes and habits of thinking, habits, bad habits in life, whatever they were, sinful procedures. We all have these things. And now we have to start engaging the enemy at the at these different strongholds on the basis of the promises and the procedures that the scriptures prescribe for us. And sometimes we just have broad general promises related to faith and trust. In other areas, we not only have broad general promises, but, you ha- but there are specific uh, commands and prohibitions in the scripture as to what we are supposed to do in order to uh, evict that pagan thought from our head. So ho- holy war depicts the battle the holy physical holy war of the Old Testament depicts the spiritual battle in the soul, and the basic method of operation is on the basis of faith. But it's not faith as an autonomous or independent mystical power. It is faith or belief in the promise of God, the procedures he outlines, and in the power of God the Holy Spirit. Those three things go together the promises, the procedures, and the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And they work together. You can't have one of those without the other. It is the Holy Spirit who reveals the Word of God. It's the Holy Spirit who takes the Word of God and puts it into our life. And it is through the Word of God that the Holy Spirit leads, guides, and directs us. And so when we enter into this this focal point on these uh, two events that the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews brings to our attention here, the the defeat of Jericho, the conquest of Jericho, and the behavior of Rahab, who's inside the, the uh, fortress, then we come to understand that this has great application for us in the spiritual life as part of the faith rest drill. And it's going to be, we'll begin with that next time when we look at how God commissions Joshua, because in that commissioning, God gives him, again, reiterates one more time for him, the promise of the land. Now, he's promised us all kinds of blessings in the spiritual life. God gives the, reiterates the general promise of the land in the first chapter, but then the first place they come to is going to be Jericho, and he says, this is how you take care of Jericho. You're going to walk, walk around the city for six, one time a day for six days, and nobody's going to make a sound. And on the seventh day, you're going to walk around it seven times, and then you're going to blow the ram's horn, and the walls are going to come down. But then the next city they have to attack is Ai. They do it a different way. Each problem we face in the spiritual life demands a different solution, different procedures. So we have broad promises, we have specific promises, and each area involves different 
areas of application in different doctrines. And that's why we have the problem-solving devices. We have love, a personal love for God. We have the impersonal love for all mankind or unconditional love. We have occupation with Christ. We have doctrinal orientation, grace orientation. All of these different things are just different ways, strategies, tactics that God's given us for dealing with the enemy that lies between our ears. So if you want to have victory in the spiritual life, we have to understand faith because that is foundational. The faith rest drill is foundational to everything else. So we'll come back and get into that in specifics uh, next Thursday night. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, study your word, have our thinking about faith challenge stretched a little bit, uh, coming to understand that faith is not just simply sitting in the pew saying, yes, I believe that, but it entails the implementation of the promises, the procedures that you have given us, recognizing that it's all done in the power of God, the Holy Spirit, walking by faith, walking by means of the Spirit and fellowship. Father, we pray that you challenge us with these things. In Christ's name, amen.